Hello, and welcome to the Tamra Talk Circular podcast. Today's episode is the second to look at a topic that is high on the agenda in North America, among other regions, Extended Producer Responsibility, or EPR. In the last episode, Viliana Iktanova joined us to explain what EPR is all about, what is already in place, and what to expect in the time to come. But we know for policy to work, you have to get the public behind it. And for the public to get behind it, it has to make sense, be easy to understand, and convenient to use. I guess the question in this case would be, can the circular economy meet these goals? I'm Mitu Morin, and our guest today is Mike Noel, Governmental Affairs Manager at Tomra. Mike's passion when it comes to sustainability is evident if you look at his LinkedIn profile, and he is currently on the front line of environmental policy in the U.S. Mike, welcome to the program. Thanks, Mitu. Happy to be here. So, Mike, what is your role at Tomra? Um, sure. So at Tamara, I work in our governmental affairs team, uh, where I get to focus on public policy related to the circular economy. Um, everything from deposit return systems to EPR for packaging. Uh, I mainly focus on North America. I'm based in Connecticut. Um, and uh, it's exciting these days because there's a lot of movement uh, around uh, shaping the circular economy. And a lot of that starts with the governments and, and their innovation with uh, and collaboration with companies. Um, but I joined Tamra um, from a, a career in viewing business as a force for good. How can we leverage the capabilities, the resources of the private sector to make a more sustainable world? Um, so I work with companies uh, on a consulting basis, at, uh, companies like Google, North Face, um, Target, for example, on creating their circular economy strategies and setting their goals and visions for um, how they can use their resources and capabilities to create a, a more sustainable uh, planet. Um, and uh, about three years ago, I joined Tamra. Um, I was really excited because Tamra's business model is so aligned with uh, you know, creating a more sustainable world. Our, our technology and services help to create a second, third, fourth, fifth life for, for the materials on this planet. Um, and uh, the government affairs role was just a good fit for me because I'm um, passionate about public policy. Okay, yeah, understandable. Um, and you mentioned circular economy several times in what you've just said. How would you define circular economy? Oh, thank you for asking because my mom asked me the same question. Um, <laughs> It's uh, so I guess the, the way I describe a circular economy is using resources to the full their fullest extent. So if they can be uh, reused again, they're reused. If they can be recycled again and used in some sort of new product, they are recycled again to the maximum extent possible. Um, they're not escaping out into the environment, causing all sorts of issues. They are kept in a continual resource loop, um, used again and again. And that can be for you know man-made materials like plastics or uh, organic materials like, say, food waste. Um, so it's all about um, using these materials again. And the word economy is in there because there is real financial value to these materials, um, which, uh, of course, uh, you know, creates revenue, it creates jobs, new businesses, um, and it's uh, an exciting space to be in these days. So why do you think, um, because we're hearing about circular economy now, to me, it seems like more, uh, more and more. 
Why do you think it's it's such a hot topic now? Um, because of the news that we're reading on an almost daily basis, um, which says that there's going to be more plastic in the ocean than fish, um, that we're having, um, that there's, uh, on the other side of the spectrum, it's not all bad news. Um, uh, a few years ago, what started a lot of this in the business space was um, a McKinsey report um, with L- the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, which showed that there's an enormous um, financial opportunity to reusing materials again. We're losing a lot of materials by either incinerating it or simply putting it a landfill or losing it to the environment in the form of littering. And there's simply a lot of financial value there. So if we were able to capture this material instead of uh, burning it or burying it, um, on the other side of the spectrum, there's environmental impacts from extracting virgin resources from from the earth um, and all the different environmental impacts that that can have from you know water pollution to air pollution. Um, and you can eliminate much of that if we just reuse these materials again and again. Um, and some of those um, uh, environmental issues are becoming so uh, acute that it's starting to create a convergence. There's a convergence of forces which are um, influencing policymakers all over the world to uh, come up with new solutions. And the business, the private sector is should be applauded here as well for stepping up and setting their own commitments and um, you know things like the U.S. Plastic Pack and uh, creating uh, an alliance of the private sector to really do something about it. Okay, so it's good for the environment and good for business. Absolutely. Okay. You just brought up the private sector. Um, When it comes to the circular economy, we hear a lot about the role for business or private sector to design products so they can be recycled or reused, for example, and the role of governments to set policies that accelerate the transition to a more circular use of resources. But you spend a lot of time talking about the consumer's role in all of this. What is the consumer's role in a circular economy? Um, yeah, interesting. I, I, yeah, and I, I think it is interesting to look at the consumer space because sometimes there's a lot of pressure focused on the business, on like you need to design your products to be recyclable or to be reused um, and governments to pass certain legislation. But at the end of the day, if we don't have the public to participate, the consumer, um, then we can't have high collection rates. And we can't have high recycling rates without collection rates, um, or you're not going to have high reuse rates if the public isn't willing to bring back their their given product and have it uh, be reused, um, no matter the government or producer effort. Um, so participation in, in collection rates are critical, um, but also um, purchase decisions. When we go to the store, let's say a, a company spent uh, decades on this more sustainable product offering. If the consumer chooses the less sustainable option, um, then there, there, there's really no impact there. We can't have impact at scale. So brands can make an effort. Um, governments can set incentives to make that more affordable or uh, available. But at the end of the day, the consumer needs to uh, play a role here too, or there is a role. It shouldn't all be placed on consumers, of course, but there is an important role for them. Okay, so consumer behavior is important, as you've just said. It sounds to me that you're saying that it does it start with the consumer? Does this whole circular economy rest with the consumer to move things forward? No, um, and I think uh, we've seen maybe that play out so far where we're asking consumers to do too much. So this is a it's a, it's a shared responsibility between consumers, governments, and 
the private sector um, to come together um, and to define um, the frameworks where we need to get to. Um, so that that in um, what experts are saying is that we need governments to play a bigger role. Um, they set the framework, the goals or the targets for the circular economy, let's say higher collection rate, collection targets or collect or recycling rates for different material types. Um, and then producers come in and they can design the systems in some cases, finance them and manage the systems needed to reach these targets, to put it in, a, you know, in simple terms. Um, but it's absolutely necessary, no matter what is created by these governments in the private sector, um, whatever programs or designs they come up with, that it's convenient for the public to participate. Otherwise, like you said, we can't expect the consumers to change behavior. Okay. And then something that I mentioned in the introduction, that it needs to be easy to use, easy to understand. It needs to be convenient. How do the policymakers make the circular economy convenient for the public? Um, well, the short answer is that they make it accessible and easy to use um, for for the public. Um, I think maybe a, a good example of this is a deposit return system, and uh, I'll use a real world example because that's I find that always helpful. Um, so, a deposit return system, if folks aren't aware, starts with legislation, where a consumer will go to a store and let's say they buy a beverage. They pay for the price of the beverage and they pay a small but meaningful deposit on top of that for the packaging itself. And then when they return the container to the store, they get their deposit back in full. It's a policy mechanism to incentivize higher collection rates and higher recycling rates as a result. Um, and it's shown to increase recycling rates about two to four times for that target packaging that higher than, say, non-deposit systems. Um, deposit collection systems. And um, a couple of years ago, two to three years ago, we at Tomer started to notice that there's really a resurgence of interest in these deposit systems. They've been around since the 70s or 80s, at least in the um, for one-way containers. And um, that was interesting to us because we operate in all the major deposit systems around the world today. There's about 40 of them. Um, and out of those, we noticed that there's a range of performance so there's some that are collecting 90% of all deposit containers all the way up to 98% in Germany, for example. And then there's some that are collecting about 50%. And that's still higher than the non-deposit collection rate in these, these regions, but um, clearly there's room for improvement. And so we wanted to better understand if there's going to be more deposit systems on multiple continents, then what can we learn from the leaders, the existing leaders? Um, and what we found is that these high-performing systems prioritize four principles to frame the design of their programs. Um, the first one is performance. So they set a meaningful deposit to incentivize the public to participate. And what do you mean by that? What is a meaningful deposit? Well, in the U.S., we see good results with around 10 cents. That tends to get a collection rate around 85 90%. It's uh, and it's about 10 euro cents in, in Europe right now. Um, so that seems to be the tipping point where we see a large percentage of the public participating and collecting um, or achieving really high collection rates. Of course, it's different for every per person's purchasing um, power, but that's where we see results. It's giving them a good financial incentive to bring that that container back. 
Absolutely. And that's the crux of a deposit system. That's what separates it from a non-deposit collection system. There's a financial, the, the consumers have a financial stake in the game. Um, and, and if it's meaningful, then they're more uh, likely to participate according to the data. Um, the, the second principle of these high-performing systems is um, producer responsibility. Um, at the end of the day, deposit return systems are a form of extended producer responsibility in that they um, have producers cover the costs and manage the finances of a deposit system. So they're helping to finance the collection system and the recycling of their beverage packaging. But the, in these high, highly efficient systems, they're able to cover most of their costs with the revenue generated by the deposit system. So not everyone is choosing to redeem all their containers. So there's still that deposit money floating around in the system. These higher performing systems allow producers to use those monies to help cover the costs and reinvest in the system itself. Um, the third principle is system integrity. And this is all about uh, building trust in the deposit system. So, um, for example, making sure that the public can trust the recycling rates that are re reported by this deposit system, or that the producers can trust the financial exchange of money and the accounting protocols followed. Um, and there is uh, usually incentives to make the system more cost resilient over time. Uh, for example, using incentives for more uh, um, cost efficient technologies. And then the final one is the principle, you're getting to the point, uh, you know, your final principle uh, is about uh, what you asked about convenience. Um, so convenience is really critical to the design of a deposit system, um, because if a, if a government is going to call a container deposit a deposit, um, they need to make sure it's easy for the public to get their money back. Otherwise, that deposit's going to be viewed as a tax. Um, and so when we looked at these highest performing systems, we analyzed, well, how, how did they design their system so it, it is easier for the public? Do they do that? Um, and it turns out that of the highest performing systems in the world, um, all of them uh, engage retailers to take back cans and bottles. So if I go back, if I buy a container, can or bottle at a store, then I can take it right back to that store, right where I bought it, and they will take it back and give me back my deposit money. Um, and you know, the reason why, so why does this lead to convenience? Why does this lead to these higher collection rates? We theorize that it's because retailers already put a lot of effort into citing their brick and mortar locations where it's convenient for you to buy more products, right? There's a reason why there's a corner store on every corner. There's a reason why there's a grocery store in every neighborhood. Um, it's because, or most neighborhoods, I should say. Um, and, and that's because it's more convenient for people to uh, access and, and buy their products. So at the end of the day, you could say that these high-performing systems make returning and, and getting their deposit back as easy as it was to buy the product in the first place. Um, now, there's a whole other host of reasons why these um, systems choose a return to retail model, um, things like cost efficiency of the system and helping it to scale quickly, um, but convenience is a big one. Um, and just one, one last example, because I think this might help bring it home for people, um, to compare the two different redemption models that are really out there. So you can, you can return containers to retailers in some cases, or the, uh, one of the other models is what's known as return to depot, where people um, will return their containers to a standalone recycling location. It's called a depot or a redemption center. Um, there tends to be less of these 
um, standalone locations in a given region. So it, it's a little harder return. Um, in Michigan, for example, this is this engages retailers to take back their cans and bottles, um, and they provide one return location for every 700 consumers. In Newfoundland and Labrador, in the Canadian province, uh, it's a return to depot model, and they provide one return uh, location for every 9,000 consumers. So oh, that's Michigan, a difference. Yeah, a right. Difference. It's a jump. Yeah. So Michigan, one for every 700. Newfoundland, one for every 9,000. And so what is this? what this looks like in, in reality is you go to the store um, in Michigan, uh, you buy your container, you can take it back to that same store in your neighborhood or on the corner. In Newfoundland, you buy it and you can't go back to that store. You probably have to go to one standalone location. It might not even be in your town. You might have to go a town over um, or to this next city. Um, and when you finally get there, you're probably going to have to wait in line. Um, with the other 8,999 people. Um, so, um, and we see this play out, um, you know, in the, in the collection rates, there's an impact in Michigan. They collect about 90% of deposit containers, whereas Newfoundland's more like 70%. Um, so when people are designing these systems, we need to think about the consumer that might not have a car. Um, and we need to think about their everyday experience when they're participating in it. So, yeah, convenience is huge in a deposit system design. As for me, I don't want to stand in line with 8,999 people. So <laughs> I can certainly understand the, the difference of that. Okay, so you've been talking about DRS. But we actually started the conversation talking about extended producer responsibility, EPR. Getting back um, to the original question, DRS, I understand, yes, it needs to be made convenient for the public. How about EPR? Can and, and does that have to be made convenient for the public? Yeah, absolutely. I think that some of the same principles apply of making it accessible and easy for the public to use. Um, but just to back up for a minute, maybe some definitions would be helpful because I know I encounter this a lot or we encounter this a lot when talking about policy and EPR. But to be clear, EPR at its core is what I would call a policy principle. It's the concept that producers take financial responsibility for the cost of management and recycling of the packaging they put on the market. Now, there's also policy instruments, uh, and by that I mean legislation that enshrines extended producer responsibility into law. Um, and so a deposit return system, or DRS, is a form of EPR in that it has producers cover the cost of collection and recycling. Um, and another policy instrument right, that you bring up is EPR for printed packaging and paper, sometimes referred to as EPR for PPP or just EPR for short. Um, I'll just use EPR for, for simplicity's sake. Um, and, and this is similar um, uh, in that it also has producers cover the costs of recycling their product, but it focuses on general house, household packaging as opposed to deposit systems that focus on one of the most littered items, beverage containers. Um, and EPR primarily collects material through curbside or drop-off locations. Um, although to be fair, the collection system they choose is really going to be dictated by how high the collection and recycling targets are set in an EPR system. Um, but yes, if in EPR uh, for for printed packaging and paper, convenience for the public is critical. Um, 
convenience in these systems really means everyone has access to recycling and everyone knows how to participate. Um, and access, at least, you know, speaking from a U.S. perspective, access is a big problem right now here. 40% of Americans lack access to equitable recycling, meaning um, 40 million households can throw something away easier than they can recycle it. And why is that? Um, you know, there's a lot of talk now about multifamily housing. Um, uh, you know, there's, there's high population numbers in this types of, you know, apartment building, for example, and these can be blind spots from a recycling perspective, mm. um, because they might be zoned as say commercial property as opposed to residential. And this means they may not be required to recycle and they've been just traditionally left out of the recycling system. So right there, you get a high population numbers of people who just don't have access to, to equitable recycling. Um, um, that and you know, there's 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 always been the the see, uh, seesaw effect between the market value of mis- uh, recyclable materials and the cost of the system itself and collection systems. Um, and that's part of why EPR is being talked about. To be honest, is is it pro- what it does at at its core is provides a stable revenue stream for the recycling system, and that can make everything better, whether it's a collection infrastructure or sorting infrastructure, um, labeling, uh, investment in better labeling. So um, that's why EPR is, is, is really um, coming to the forefront here. In terms of access, you know, recycling is regional. The infrastructure is different in each place. So providing universal access might look a little different in an urban high density area and where curbside might be more sufficient for that type of spot. Whereas in rural low density areas, drop off locations might be more sufficient. And then uh, just as it is in a deposit system, you know, infrastructure is only helpful if the public knows how to participate, if they know where to um, recycle and how to do that. So just communication is really important for these these systems. And labeling, like I said, is, is, is a factor as well. I think if you ask the average person on the street, they're pretty, pretty confused right now about what is recyclable, at least at least in the U.S. Um, and so if we want people to recycle en masse, we need to more clearly label valuable material from um, not valuable material. So, and it's not only the U.S., also in Europe, there's there's confusion as, as what can be recycled and what can't. And uh, if anything, I think it's a collaborative approach across the value chain. So we start with design for recycling, then the consumers, then the recyclers, so that we actually are working together. And all of this, I guess, is encompassed by a well-structured EPR system. It absolutely can be. And I think that's why there's a lot of talk about it and, and yeah, about what EPR should include or can include. And labeling is, is definitely up there in terms of um, important priorities. Okay. Mike, one last question. You fairly recently became a father of twins, although I have to say you certainly are looking a bit more lively than you did a year ago. Um, we all need to do our part to improve the world somehow. And that includes leaving the environment in a better place than how we found it. So what are you going to tell your children that is their role in that whole storyline? What can they do? Wow, me too. You're <laughs> the heavy question. Um, I, uh, I, you know, I guess, I guess my role is to make sure that they find their role. Um, you know, part of my job is just to instill 
what you said is that we all need to do our part. There's a big challenge here. Um, and their job is to find out how they can make an impact. Um, and I can, you know, I'm a firm believer that you're not going to stick with anything um, if it just feels like a chore every day. So you need to find something that you find joy in, that you're good at, that um, you find rewarding and fulfilling. Um, otherwise, you might just go back to Netflix and chilling, you know. Um, so, so you need to find out what you're good at, what, what you love. Um, and, you know, my job is to encourage them to channel that type of work into something that makes the world a better place. Um, you know, so my son is, is busy running around right now. He has a ton of energy. Maybe, maybe he'll be like a community organizer or a protest organizer. Uh, my daughter, Quinn, she's coloring all the time. So maybe she'll be a graphic designer for an NGO or something. So, um, I'm not here to define their role. Maybe I'll, I'll encourage them to find that for themselves. Very good advice for any parent. Thanks, Mike. And Mike, thanks very much for taking the time to talk about how EPR can be convenient for the consumer. We look forward to keeping track of what's going on in the U.S. in the near and distant future. Let's hope the momentum keeps up. And we'd also like to hear your thoughts. What do policymakers need to keep in mind to make EPR as easy as possible for the consumers? Please feel free to leave a comment or send a mail to tce-info at And I'll see you in a couple of weeks. <laughs>